Zechariah chapter 12. We're actually going to be looking at verse number 1 of chapter 13, but I want to begin the Bible reading in Zechariah 12 and starting in verse number 9. Zechariah 12 and verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadranim in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shammai apart and their wives apart, and the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. And that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, Then their father and their mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those that which wounded in the house of my friends. Amen. We'll end our Bible reading there at the end of verse number 6, but I want to point your attention back to that first verse of chapter 13 where Zechariah tells us in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Let's seek the Lord in prayer together, and then we'll come and we'll consider this verse more specifically. Well, let's pray now. Our Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us, even that we've just been singing about that faithfulness in keeping your promise you had said early on in recorded history, just right after the fall of man, you said that you would send one who would be a redeemer. 
And we thank you that in the fullness of time, Christ did come. And we thank you that that fountain was opened. And we thank you that you have caused us to pass under that fountain. And our sins have been forgiven. We pray that you'll help us tonight as we consider these truths and as we come around your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have said already, my text for this evening is in verse number 1 of chapter 13. And you'll see that it begins with that phrase, in that day. This verse tells us from Zechariah's perspective that he was looking forward to a day that a fountain would be opened for sin and for uncleanness. We, as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, we look back on a day when that fountain was indeed opened. All of what Zechariah said would happen has already been fulfilled. That day of the Lord has already taken place. But that phrase, in that day, emphasizes for us a very important theme that we have through developed for the most part through the minor prophets, this theme of the day of the Lord. Uh, We read about it in chapter 12 and verse number 9, and it shall come to pass in that day. Uh, We have seen this already in the book of Zechariah in chapter 3. The Lord said that he would remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And there's this theme of the day of the Lord It's not necessarily a 24-hour period. It's not a day that we think of in those terms. But if I can read you simply a definition of this theme, it would be this. The day of the Lord is God's supernatural intervention into time. It is a special manifestation of the Lord's power. It is the Lord's intervention into time, either for judgment against sin or blessing for righteousness. As you study the minor prophets as a whole, you'll see this theme of the day of the Lord emphasized in slightly different ways in each of the different prophets. For example, in the book of Amos, he speaks much of the day of the Lord. But when Amos talks about the day of the Lord, he talks about it in the sense of a day of great judgment that would come upon the Lord's people. And Amos warns the people and he tells them, you that that hope for the day of the Lord, it's a day of judgment. He says in Amos 5 and verse number 18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And so Amos warned of the judgment of God that would come upon sinners. The day of the Lord for the ungodly is a dreadful day. It's a horrible day for them. It's a day of judgment and wrath. But for us as believers, it's a very different day. And Zechariah takes an entire, entirely different flavor when he discusses the day of the Lord. I've said many, many times already, Zechariah is a prophet of hope. And when Zechariah speaks of the day of the Lord, he speaks of it to the Lord's people as a day of great restoration a day when all things are made right, a day when the Lord comes in power to save. We looked, turn back a few pages in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 2. We looked at this already in one of the other messages, but just an illustration of how Zechariah speaks of this day of the Lord where 
He says in Zechariah 2 and verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he hath raised up out of his holy habitation. We looked at that last verse in one of our prayer meetings. But that section of Scripture emphasizes this day of the Lord, as Zechariah presents it, as a day of great hope a day of great restoration when the Lord comes and visits his people in revival blessing, in restoration power. And that's what we long for. Zechariah is speaking of this day of the Lord when a fountain is opened for sin and for uncleanness. It is a day that encompasses, yes, exactly the day of crucifixion, that, that day that Christ was put on a cross. But there's a sense in which we can step back and look at it from a much broader perspective and say that the entire life of Christ, though it was 33 or so years long, was one extended day of the Lord. It was a moment that God stepped into time in a way to intervene on behalf of his people. It was more than 24 hours, but it was the day of the Lord. And you'll find in the Minor Prophets, they speak of the day of the Lord in those terms. The day of the Lord is the work of Christ for us when God stepped into time. But as we come to the Lord's table this evening, I want us to come and look at this particular day of the Lord where that fountain is open for sin and for uncleanness. So I want to focus on this verse really just specifically. And I want you to see, first of all, the purpose of this fountain. Why is it that Zechariah tells us about a fountain that's open for sin and for uncleanness? Uh, Maybe you've been to some famous city and you've gone to a famous city square and they have a big fountain, a big decorative, a decoratory fountain, a beautiful thing to behold. And often a fountain is really just for that purpose. It's a, a place of decoration or it's a place of refreshment. But that's not really what Zechariah is speaking about here. And, and you know this and you understand this. This is not a fountain that's just for looks. But this is a fountain that's open for a redemptive purpose. This is a fountain that is open for the purpose of the salvation of his people. The word fountain that's used here is a word that almost every time it's used in the Old Testament it's used in a figurative sense. This particular Hebrew noun is almost always used figuratively. And it's used to describe something that flows forth. Something that flows forth. And this is the imagery here of this fountain open that flows forth. Not a fountain of water, but as it is in the case of Christ, a fountain of blood, a fountain that is for our cleansing. And so as we consider the purpose of this fountain, it's a fountain for the cleansing of sinners. It's a fountain for sin and for uncleanness, just exactly as it says here. This is the reason, this is the purpose of this fountain. 
Because every man born since Adam has been born in, in corruption, completely infested with sin. We were looking at this just very briefly at the end of our Sunday school time this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, the last verse there, 728, I think it is. That God created man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God created man in, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. God created man in his own image with a love and a, a natural bent toward the Lord. But yet they sought out sin. And we are guilty of Adam's first transgression. We're guilty of our own personal sin and corruption. And we stand condemned before a holy God. And so we need cleansing. And this fountain is open for the purpose of cleansing sinners. Our thoughts are against God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 10, verse 4, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. You read that in English, and it might come across in a little bit confusing way. God is not in all his thoughts, as if, if a man has 100 thoughts in a day, well, God's only in about 10 of them, and the other 90 are not about God. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about left to himself. Man's mind does not go in a redemptive way toward the God of heaven. Man's mind is not naturally inclined toward God. He doesn't think about God on his own. Or any thoughts that he does have are thoughts of hatred. You take the atheist, for example. The atheist is he's a fool, obviously. Uh, but really something of a paradox. Because here is one who claims that the God that he hates so much does not even exist. But his thoughts are consumed with a hatred for this one who says is not even real. He, he's at constant war. He's in constant conflict in his mind and in his thoughts with the God of heaven the one he knows with whom he has to do. And, and he lives in this conflict, hating something that he doesn't even think exists. It's absurd. But God is not in their thoughts in a redemptive way. So man's thoughts are against God. His will is against God. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Our actions are prone to evil outside of Christ. Our emotions are against God. Sinful man, we have inordinate affections. We're lovers of pleasures more than we are lovers of God. Left to ourselves, our emotions would rebel against God. And we love ourselves, we love our own things rather than God. And so we're guilty sinners. And so there's a need for this fountain. And the purpose of this fountain that Zechariah describes that would be open. The purpose of Christ, the fountain, we'll see the identity of this in a moment, but, but the purpose of this fountain is for the very cleansing of sinners. But I would submit there's another purpose to this fountain, not only the cleansing of sinners, but I would put it to you this way, for the sanctification of saints. Once you've been cleansed, all your sins are forgiven. When we come to Christ in initial salvation, 
and we bow before him, we repent of our sins, our sins are washed away, our sins is cast, are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're thrown in the deepest part of the sea. And there's, there's verse after verse that gives us some illustration of what that is. But yet there's still an ongoing need for a daily cleansing. It's what the Puritans refer to as keeping short accounts with God. Coming daily for cleansing. Coming for a daily repentance. Now, that's not for a daily salvation. That's not for a, a daily being saved all over again. But just as you would take a bath every night or take a bath every morning, take a shower every night, every morning, whatever, daily you cleanse off the filth of the day. And the Lord illustrated that in the upper room when he washed his disciples' feet. You may turn to John 13. I'll point out some verses and you can look at these texts, but you'll remember the story just well enough. When Christ washes disciples' feet, Peter protested. Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to, I don't deserve this. I'm not going to have you wash my feet. And in John 13, 8, the Lord said to Peter, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Peter didn't understand all that the Lord was saying. And so Peter responded to that and said, Well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And so he says, Lord, forget my feet, wash my whole body. And the Lord deals very gently with Peter, and he tells him in verse number 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean. And so the Lord there is, is illustrating to Peter, Peter, your, your sins have been forgiven. You are clean. But there's still a need for daily cleansing, not to be resaved, but to keep short accounts with the Lord. This is the whole point of us asking daily for the Lord's forgiveness, confessing our sins. We, we don't work off our sin by good works or penance. We know that to be the case for initial salvation, and we would all say we're not saved by works. But yet how many of us fall in to that subtle wrong thinking that now, after we're saved, we do something wrong and we have to wait it out. And, and over time, our conscience will be better. We won't feel quite so guilty. And we, in essence, live a life as a Christian thinking that we work off daily sin, but we don't. We come to Christ for cleansing. We come to him for that initial cleansing of salvation but as believers, we come continually to this fountain. We come continually to Christ, confessing our sins, pleading the merits of Christ's shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so that leads us secondly to the identity of this fountain. There is the purpose of the fountain, and then the identity of this fountain. This is not a mystery. This is not something that we have to search the scriptures long and hard and try to figure out what in the world are you talking about, Zechariah? Now, it might be that those in Zechariah's day didn't understand all that Zechariah was speaking about. They didn't see and understand all that the Messiah would be. They didn't know all that Christ would accomplish. 
but yet we, looking back, we understand as clear as the nose on our face of exactly what Zechariah is referring to. He's referring to the person of Jesus Christ. He's referring to Christ, that one who is the fountain open for sin and for uncleanness. And we see this fountain from two different perspectives. One, in that the fountain is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I emphasize it that way. He's the Son of God, really to emphasize the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is the Word made flesh that dwelt among us. When Christ hung on the cross, it was God himself on the cross dying for the sins of his people, the Son of God. If you look back at chapter 9 where we began to read, there are some important things for us to consider here. If you look at verse 9, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, let's just think for a moment. Who is speaking there? Well, the speaker is God. God is the one who is saying what he's going to do. He's, he's going to destroy all those nations that come against Jerusalem. And then you come to verse 10, and the same speaker, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. So look at these pronouns and how the Lord is revealing himself. So in, chapter, in verse number 9, it's clear that it's God who is speaking. And then the Lord continues to speak, and he says, they'll look upon me whom they have pierced. And so we have to understand this is Christ who is speaking. Christ is the one who is pierced. And, and we know absolutely, Zechariah, we could give them a break that they might not understand all the import of what Zechariah had just said. But we don't get a break because the New Testament has already identified this for us. Turn over to John chapter 19. Look with me at John 19. And we see a very specific fulfillment of this very thing and we see the identity of this fountain so clearly that it is Jesus Christ the Son of God John 19 34 but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water and he that saw it bear record and his record is true and he knoweth that he saith is true that ye might believe for these things were done, that all the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. And so John is there standing at the cross, and John saw this happen. And immediately, as it were, John is recording for us, when that happened, the pieces of the puzzle all came together for me, he says. And I realized this is what Zechariah was talking about, that, that we would look upon the one who was pierced. Who could ever see that coming? Who, who could ever anticipate that morning that, that later that day Jesus Christ would be pierced in his side? Who saw that coming? But the God of heaven prophesied this 
400 years before, 500 years before it actually took place. And John records the fulfillment of it, that this is God on the cross dying for sinners. But not only is he the son of God, but this fountain is also Jesus Christ, the son of man. And I make that statement to emphasize the humanity of Christ. We have to emphasize both because it is the God-man who died on the cross. The, maybe the most important answer in the catechism is question number 21. Who is the only redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continueth to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The heresies of the church, so many of the heresies of the church have centered around the person of Jesus Christ, some denying his humanity, some denying his deity, some denying both. But we have to affirm both, that it is God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul tells us in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Paul also tells us that Christ took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we have to emphasize both aspects of Christ, his, his real humanity, his real deity, and that's the identity of this fountain. It's God who took to himself flesh that died for our sins. It couldn't have been an angel that died for us. That couldn't be this fountain. Because an angel is not a human. There has to be a human that dies for humanity. Hebrews makes this so clear. It's not the blood of bulls and goats or, or the ashes of an heifer that can cleanse sin. But it's only the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Uh, that one who is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who has died for sinners. And so we see the purpose of it, a cleansing for sinners, uh, for the sanctification of believers, the identity of it, being Christ himself. And then I want you to see thirdly the availability of this fountain. We read in Zechariah 13.1, it's a fountain opened. It's a fountain opened. The availability of this fountain is that it is open. And we can say from that, this is a fountain that has never been closed a fountain that has never been closed. When Christ died on the cross, that fountain was opened and has not been closed. Now, it's not opened in the sense of quantity of blood. It's not that, that blood is still flowing. So it's not a fountain open in the sense of a quantity of blood. But if you will, it's a fountain open in the sense of quality of blood to keep the cues quantity versus quantity but really in the sense of the virtue of that blood the value of that blood has never run out the literal blood of Jesus Christ is in his veins I used to think this way maybe it was silly for me to think this way but I think other people might think this way that in heaven someplace 
I don't know, maybe you think I'm crazy. This is absurd. But in heaven someplace, like in the Old Testament, they, they shed the, the blood, the animal was killed, and the blood was collected in a bowl, and the high priest went with the hyssop and, and sprinkled the blood where it needed to be done, and, and this blood was in this bowl, and then on the altar and the blood was poured out, etc. Maybe I'm silly for thinking this way, but this is what I thought. That in heaven there was like this bowl of Jesus' blood. Does that make sense? That's not right. It's not that Jesus is sitting up there holding this bowl of blood, showing it to the Father, here's the blood that I shed for sinners. No, Jesus is in heaven. His blood is flowing through his veins because what's seated at the right hand of the Father is not a spirit. It's not a ghost. It's not a form. But what's seated at the right hand of the Father is a human being, a person, with flesh and blood like I have flesh and blood, and like you have flesh and blood. And we understand the poetry of hymnology and, and how we, we sing of those, those things in our hymns, and I don't mean to be crass, and I don't mean I don't I don't mean to be disrespectful or irreverent in saying this, but Jesus is not in heaven bleeding. He he's not the bleeding lamb, as our hymnology might put it. He's not in heaven with with blood stained garments anymore. He's healed. And again, I hope you understand how I'm talking about this. I'm, I don't mean to be irreverent in talking about it, but just, just practically what's going on in heaven. Jesus is in heaven as the glorified Christ, but in real humanity. And the blood of Christ is flowing through his veins just like you have blood flowing through your veins and just like I have blood flowing through my veins. But that's the blood of Christ. It's, it's the same blood. It's, as the New Testament refers to it, incorruptible blood. It's perfect blood. But it's blood that was shed for our cleansing. And so it's a fountain opened. And, and it's never been clo- it closed in the sense that it's still available. The, the blood of Christ is still available for you that availability of that fountain, the opening of that fountain, in that sense, it's never stopped. It's available for any who would come. And that's the second thing to see here about the availability of this fountain. It's a fountain open, but it's a fountain open for all who will come to it. So David, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Zechariah describes it here as a fountain opened, you see in the passage, to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And there's a lot that's been written as to what does he mean by that. He talks about the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and how are these different? Are these even different? What's what's the point of the two? Some take the house of David to be referring to Israel more specifically. Some take the house of David as to be referring to the wealthy, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to be referring to the poor. I think that's a big stretch, and I don't think that makes really any sense. But then the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
indicating those that lived in Jerusalem, those that were crying, crucify him. I think all this is, is really just perhaps a stretch. I think the point of what Zechariah is communicating, what the Lord wants us to understand, this is a fountain that is open to everybody, to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. If you want to take it as, as the royalty and the commoner, whatever, but it, it's to everybody. That's the point. Here's a fountain open to all who will come. And did Christ not say, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out? I think this is worth mentioning, but some have questioned why in this passage the Gentiles are not specifically mentioned. Because was this not a fountain opened to us as well? How do we as Gentiles fit into this house of David inhabitants of of Jerusalem? And many take that inhabitants of Jerusalem as Gentiles that were perhaps there or whatever, but I think perhaps the best answer to that is simply to put it in these terms that this fountain is open to all the people of God. And without, I bear your patience and I rely on your theological acumen without going down the whole rabbit trail of the extent and purpose of the atonement, we understand that Christ died for his people. Christ died for those that are his. If we can just cut to the chase in our language, Christ died for the elect. He died for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He, it's a fountain open for all those that are his. Who are his? Well, the Bible tells us that his people are those that come to him in saving faith. Anyone who will come to Christ is a child of God. Now, Again, I count on your own, I rely on your own theological understanding, and you're a very well-educated people. We know who those people are. Those are those that the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart and regenerates them, causes them to be made alive, and those that the Holy Spirit, in that act of regeneration, makes alive are effectually called and they irresistibly come to him. And they are part of that number that this fountain has been opened for. A fountain literally for anyone who will come. Just come. That's the Bible's command. That's the gospel call. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible never, ever tells you to figure out whether or not you're able to come. The Bible just tells you to come. And if you have any inkling at all in your heart to come to Christ, then the gospel call is to simply come. Come unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me The Lord says, I will in no wise cast out. You come to Christ. This fountain is available. Now, if you're here tonight and you have never made use of this fountain, this fountain is available to you. Even on a communion Sunday night, this fountain is available. If you have never 
known or understood or experienced what it means to have your sins forgiven, to be washed by the blood of Christ, tonight's the night for that to take place. Tonight's the night for you to come to Christ in humble faith and repentance for the cleansing of your soul. This fountain's available. There's no problem in the fountain. The fountain's not the problem. The fountain is not the reason why you won't come. It's not that the fountain isn't available. It's not that you can't figure out what this fountain is. It's not that you can't figure out where to go. It's not that you can't figure out what to do. There's no problem in the fountain. If you refuse to come to the fountain, you can't blame the fountain. You can only blame yourself. You can only blame your own sinfulness and your own love of sin. That's the only reason that you would not come to this fountain. Because this fountain is opened. It's open to anybody that wants to come to it. And so here it is. Just come to the fountain and be cleansed. And that leads me to one last thing that we have to understand, and that is the exclusivity of this fountain. Because you might be tempted to argue in your mind, well, is there not some other way? Was there not some other way that I could be cleansed? Could I not just be a better person? Could I not just try harder and be cleansed that way? But no, there's an exclusivity to this fountain. Because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There simply is no other way to be cleansed. God has not provided anything else. There is one God. And there is only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus, the one who is this fountain. There is no other option for this. In the Old Testament, it's illustrated for us quite clearly by Naaman in this idea of washing. You remember Naaman had leprosy, and he was told to go and dip, to wash himself, whatever, seven times in the Jordan River. He would be cured from his leprosy. And he rebelled against that. The Jordan River? Thing's nasty. What about this other real nice river? Why can't I go there? Or why can't I not travel and go to this other real nice place? This other pool, this other pond, this other thing. You know, had he gone and dipped a million times in the Euphrates River, he wouldn't have been cleansed. He could have dipped a million times in the Tigris River, never been cleansed. It was only the Jordan. It was only that place that God, through the prophet, had ordained and appointed. It was the only way that Naaman could know any cleansing. There was only one option for him. There was no other way to be clean. And we know the story. Naaman went, he dipped himself, and he was cleaned. But had he gone anyplace else, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have happened. There's the ex- this is the exclusivity of this fountain that Zechariah is telling us about. A fountain that has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. And again, I emphasize to you, there's no problem with this fountain. This fountain is open. This fountain is, in, is available. It's a fountain that's pure and spotless, 
a fountain that has never changed, the promise that Christ has given, come unto me and I will give you rest, come for cleansing, come, you'll in no wise be cast out. None of that has ever changed. The problem is with the hard heart of the sinner who refuses to come. John 5.40, the Lord says there, you will not come unto me that you might have life. There's a willful disobedience. There's a willful refusal of Christ to those who refuse this fountain. But I'm here to tell you that there's a fountain opened. If you're not saved, Jeremiah's words are ones that should ring in your ear. Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. If you're not saved, you're seeking your satisfaction, you're seeking your pleasure, you're seeking your wholeness, you're seeking fulfillment in something that will never fulfill you. It will never satisfy you. It will never fill that void in your heart. That void will remain to your dying day unless you come to Christ. Jeremiah says that the problem, the evil that you've committed is you have willfully forsaken Christ, the fountain of living water, and you've replaced it with something that's just nonsense. Who uses a broken bucket? A bucket that can't hold water. A bucket that's of no value to anybody, but yet you put all of your stock in that. You put all your hope in something that just is empty at the bottom. That's the imagery that Zechariah uses. I'm sorry, that Jeremiah uses. And why would you continue to refuse Christ when he's available? But thankfully I'm preaching to many who have already come to this fountain. You've already been cleansed. And we can say with those in Revelation 7.14 that we have washed our robes and we've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And we can rejoice in this fountain that's opened and the cleansing that we have known. As we come to the Lord's table, we come specifically to remember this very thing. The broken body and the shed blood of Christ. The blood more specifically emphasized for us here. But this fountain open was a fountain that was broken. And Christ there on the cross was broken for us and his blood was shed for us that we might be saved. So may the Lord bless us as we partake of these elements together.